starting at verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In a time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to, as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does an un, what does a unbeliever have in common with an unbeliever? Sorry, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Thanks, Kate. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Ben, if I haven't met you. It feels a bit like we're the kind of left-behind generation, aren't we? Barney's members are scattered all over the world at the moment. Um, and uh, you may not have uh, got to go away over the long weekend, but you get to hear a sermon on 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll uh, get into the passage. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to read your word in our own language. And Father, how we thank you that your Holy Spirit, who caused these words to be written, is present with us this morning to help us, to enable us to both understand and to apply what you are saying to us. So please give us soft hearts, open ears, ready wills to, to respond to what you say in repentance and faith. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, if you weren't here last year, you would have missed the first half of 2 Corinthians. I think it was in October we, um, we preached through the first half of the book up to chapter 5. 
And now we're picking up in, in chapter 6, and over the next six weeks we're going to cover the second half. Let me give you a, a brief intro to the book, uh, which uh, you've probably forgotten from last year, even if you were here. Uh, Corinth, uh, that is the, the town that Paul's writing to, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. Corinth was a massive, thriving metropolis in the first century. It was a port city and a trade city, uh, a population of maybe three quarters of a million and a bit of a melting pot of cultures and ideas. It was a city that seems to have prized the outwardly impressive. And so it was a city in which the message of the gospel did not sit easily. Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. When you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's clear that Paul loved this church. He, he loved the church in Corinth, but he was also exasperated by them. He spent, we know from the book of Acts, about 18 months living in Corinth, establishing the church. But after he left, various problems arose. We know from 1 and 2 Corinthians that Paul kept up a close connection with the church. Although it's called 2 Corinthians, it's at least Paul's fourth letter to the church there. And we know that he visited them again at least once uh, since uh, establishing the church. One commentator writes, at this point in their relationship, I, when Paul writes this letter, it was still not entirely clear whether the church would flourish and grow or crash and burn, which explains why this is the most passionate, honest, vulnerable, heartfelt letter in the Bible. The particular issue that Paul is addressing in this letter is that members of the church are being influenced by false teachers. Paul sarcastically calls them super-apostles, People who were very charismatic and impressive and who taught that God's blessing was seen in outward success. Paul calls them peddlers of God's word, false apostles, deceitful workmen. And so in this letter, Paul is writing to the Corinthians to try and persuade them to stick with him and to stick with his gospel, the message of the cross. Paul knows that if they reject him, they'd be rejecting his message. If they reject his message, they'd be rejecting the Lord Jesus. They'd be rejecting God. And Paul is not going to sit quietly by and let that happen. 2 Corinthians is a passionate appeal to remain true to the gospel, true to the Lord Jesus. It contains a wonderful description of an authentic Christian life and ministry, a cross-shaped Life. That's what you get particularly in chapters 3 to 5, but throughout the book. I don't know what passage is going to be preached on at the um, online dinner, the CMS dinner, but that theme of uh, strong gods working in our weakness, I wouldn't be surprised if he teaches from 2 Corinthians. Now in chapter 6, Paul makes his appeal. He's described his life, his ministry. He's described what an authentic cross-shaped life is like. Now he makes his appeal. It's make your mind up time for the Corinthians. Who are they going to side with? 
Uh, and you can see right at the middle of that passage the kind of heartfelt appeal. Verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We've opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. For us today, the truth is we're either moving toward God or we're moving away. There's no neutrality in the Christian life. We're either responding to God in repentance and faith or we're ignoring him and hardening our hearts to him. And so for us today, as every day, we face that choice of how we're going to respond. In this passage, Paul makes three appeals. Firstly, in verses 1 and 2, he says, Respond to God's grace today. Respond to God's grace today. Let me read again from verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. These opening verses pack a real punch. Paul says he's working together with God. He's a co-worker, which invests his words with real authority. He says, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, which means, shockingly, that there's a possibility of doing that, of receiving God's grace, but it having no impact on us, receiving it in vain. The Corinthians had known Paul for years. He'd lived in Corinth, teaching them week by week. As I said, he kept up a, a close correspondence with them, these guys had privileged access to a man who was the greatest theologian teacher that there ever was. But Paul's fear is that it would all come to nothing, that they would receive God's grace in vain. And for us, we have similar priv privileges, really, don't we? Many of us have grown up in churches where the Bible was taught carefully, faithfully, People have invested in us, they've taught us, they've trained us. We've had access to great books and other resources, and yet it's possible to have all of that, and yet it to have no lasting impact. It's a chilling prospect, isn't it? And we've got to ask, well, how can we avoid receiving God's grace in vain? And verse 2 gives us the answer. Firstly, note how Paul introduces this quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 2, for he says in the time of my favor. It's easy to skip over that, but it's really significant. Paul is saying God speaks in the present tense. What scripture says, God says. God's word is still live. What he said back then, he is still speaking today. Now, in Isaiah 49, God is speaking directly to his servant, whom we now know to be Jesus. Isaiah is saying that God has listened to his servant and has helped him to fulfill his mission of rescue. The day of salvation was the day of the servant, Jesus, as he came and lived, died, and rose again to rescue us. But here, Paul is saying that the day of salvation continues. 
His own ministry is an extension of Jesus' ministry. And the Corinthians really need to listen and respond. He's saying that right now, today, is the best time to respond to God's grace. And if that was true then, it's also true today. As we open up the Bible and hear God speaking to us in the present tense through his words, through the words of his apostles and prophets. This is the way to avoid receiving God's grace in vain, that we listen to God and respond on the spot. So let me ask you, is there anything that you know God has been addressing in your life and you've been putting off responding? It might be that he's calling you to put your faith in Christ. It might be he's calling you to confess and deal with a particular sin, fully confident, as we've been reminded, that all our sins are forgiven in Christ. It might be that he's calling you to initiate a difficult conversation. Whatever it is, today is the day to respond. Don't put it off. The second appeal that Paul makes comes in verses 3 to 10, and he calls us to embrace a genuine gospel-shaped life. Verses 3 to 10 are a description of Paul's life and ministry. He wants the Corinthians to see that this is what a gospel-shaped life looks like, so that they would embrace it for themselves. Paul's life and ministry are in line with his message. He preaches the message of the cross, and what he describes of his life and ministry perfectly matches up. In the Corinthians' success-mad, reputation-driven culture, Paul longs for them to see that looking impressive on the surface counts for very little, that the authentic Christian life is one of following Jesus in the way of the cross. Now, this whole description is directed by what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. In verse 4, he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Which for Paul means doing everything he can do to make sure he doesn't put a stumbling block in anyone's path. You see, following Jesus means that life isn't about us anymore. It's about loving other people and wanting above all else for other people to see Jesus. And therefore dealing with anything in us, what we say and how we live, that might be a hindrance to that end. This is what Paul describes and what he calls us to embrace, a genuinely gospel-shaped life, one in which every part of our lives adorns the gospel and points people to Jesus. We haven't got time to go through every specific thing in Paul's description. Let me give you three headings. He starts off in verses 4 and 5 talking about pain and persecution. Let me read again from verse 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. 
In contrast to the, the comfort and prosperity that the false apostles were selling, Paul says following Christ means sharing in his sufferings, accepting a life of pain and persecution. In verses 6 to 7, Paul switches to talking about purity and power. Verse 6, impurity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Again, in contrast to the, the outward show of the false apostles and the immorality that they seem to have com- condoned, Paul says the authentic Christian life is one of purity, Christ-like character brought about through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 8 to 10, he gives a list of paradoxical pairs. There you go, lots of P's. Pain and persecution, purity, power, paradoxical pairs. Verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. could probably preach a sermon on each of those. But Paul is saying that a gospel-shaped life will mean facing ups and downs. It'll mean that while in the world we face rejection and persecution, sorrow, poverty, we know that in Christ we have honor, eternal life, joy, and riches beyond compare. It's some list, isn't it? And it challenges me because if I was asked to describe the Christian life, it wouldn't look like this. But Paul says, here is authenticity. Here is faithfulness. Here is what God is calling us to, a genuine gospel-shaped life of following Jesus. And the question is, will we embrace it? Will we embrace it? So respond to God's grace today. Embrace a gospel-shaped life. The third appeal Paul makes is in verses 11 to 7 verse 1. Pursue a pure allegiance to God. Pursue a pure allegiance to God. Now verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, has often been used to teach that Christians should not marry non-Christians. Let me say, I do think it is a bad idea to marry someone who doesn't share your faith, who doesn't share your worldview, your priorities, your foundation in life. You're setting yourself up for difficulty. And the Bible makes that clear at a number of points. Let me also say, if you're married to someone who is not a Christian, or uh, you're married to someone who who of whom you do not share their Christian faith, your marriage is a genuine marriage to be protected, valued, and invested in. All of that said, I don't believe that 2 Corinthians 6.14 is primarily about marriage. Similarly, verse 16, we are the temple of the living God, is often used to teach that we should avoid smoking and junk food and should do some regular exercise. Let me say, 
I do think it's a good idea to look after our physical health and our bodies. However, I don't believe 2 Corinthians 6.16 is primarily talking about going on a keto diet, taking up yoga. These verses as a whole are in the first place about the Corinthians sticking with Paul and his gospel rather than aligning themselves with those who are offering an alternative gospel. And here, shockingly, for the first time, Paul describes these false teachers as unbelievers. Their teaching, their theology is so far from that of Christ that Paul is convinced they're not Christian at all. It's incredibly strong language, isn't it? Verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, a name for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Paul is saying we, the church, are the temple. It's in us that God has taken up residence by his spirit. It's here in the church that the mission of Christ continues. So how could we allow people who are actively opposing Christ to set up shop in the church? How could we align ourselves with those who are actively pulling us away from the true gospel? It's a matter of allegiance. Paul is calling the Corinthians to stick with him and his gospel, to stick with Christ. Paul is saying, open wide your hearts to us, but shut the door in the face of these imposters. Now this has implications for who we allow to preach here at Barney's, who we appoint as leaders in the church. But it also has implications for who we allow to have a directing influence in our lives. It's worth thinking about the messages that you're receiving through your YouTube feed, your social media accounts, your podcatcher, your preferred news source. I'm not saying we should only listen to Christian podcasts, but we do need to be careful if we're allowing other influences to direct us away from the gospel. Who is it that has influence in your life? Who is directing and shaping your worldview, your priorities, your values? Now to back up what Paul says, he quotes from a number of Old Testament passages that are all about God's intimate relationship with his people. So verse 16, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. To side with these false teachers, Paul says, is to walk away from the gospel. It would be to reject God, which is why Paul continues in verse 17, Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God is calling his people to purity, to a pure allegiance to him. That last quotation is taken from 2 Samuel 7, which is one of the key Old Testament passages pointing to Jesus the Messiah. 
And by applying it to us, Paul is saying that we share in the sonship of the Messiah. We were thinking about sonship last week. Through faith in Jesus, we have all the privileges of being sons, children of God. And Paul's point is, how could we give all of that up for some outwardly impressive but ultimately empty philosophy? God offers himself to us in the gospel. He offers to make his home with us, to be our God, to make us his children. Therefore, Paul concludes in 7 verse 1, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Having these gospel promises, these great and precious promises, should motivate us to a pure devotion and allegiance to God, to commit ourselves to a gospel-shaped life of following Jesus. So three appeals. Respond to God's grace today. Embrace a genuine gospel-shaped life and pursue a pure allegiance to God. Friends, this isn't a game. God himself is speaking to us in his word. He's calling us to follow his son, the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again for us. In the light of all he's done for us, all he is doing for us, in the light of his great and precious promises to us, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's commit ourselves to him afresh in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you speak to us today in the words of Scripture. Thank you that you're a God of amazing grace and kindness. Thank you for the incredible promises that you've given us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, please, please, enable us by your Spirit not to receive your grace in vain, but to respond, to respond to all that you say to us, to respond in repentance and faith, to embrace a gospel-shaped life, following Jesus in the way of the cross and pursuing purity and holiness out of reverence for you. We ask for your glory's sake. Amen.